Last episode, we looked at some sightings that preceded the officially recognised encounters of Springhill Jack, and also the first reported case, that of Jane Allsop. Tonight, we will be digging deeper into the mystery. Tonight's episode would not have been possible if it were not for all the research that was undertaken by Mike Dash and his paper, Springhill Jack, to Victorian Bugaboo from Suburban Ghost. Hello and welcome to the third episode of As Yet Unexplained. Tonight we will be concluding our two-part look at the mysterious figure of English folklore, Springhill Jack, and the strange stories of him and other encounters that led to his rise in fame. If you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing, or even writing a review on whatever platform you choose to listen to podcasts. As always, we like to remind the listener that within this podcast are unsettling descriptions, and you should be cautious if you find such things distressing. Also, with every story there are victims, so please spare a thought for those who have suffered. The Scales Incident The next incident, although scant in details, does share a lot of similarities to the Allsop case. A Lucy Scales, 18, and her sister were going home from seeing their brother, a butcher, who resided in Limehouse on February the 28th, 1839, nine days after the attack on Miss Allsop. Miss Scales claimed in her police statement that she and her sister had been travelling down Green Dragon Alley when they noticed a person standing suspiciously at an angle in the passage. She was walking ahead of her sister at the time, and when she approached the mysterious gentleman who was clad in a voluminous cloak, he spurted a quantity of blue flame in her face, blinding her and causing her to fall to the ground. She was then convulsing from fits, which it is stated lasted for several hours. The event is said to have occurred at around 8.30pm. It is said that Springhill Jack did not even attempt to physically hurt the girls, but instead walked away as soon as the deed was done. Lucy was carried home, and a surgeon was sent in to see her. Her description of Jack is similar to Jane Allsop's. He was tall and slender, dressed gentlemanly, and wore a bonnet-like headdress, 
and a big cloak. For whatever reason, the press paid little notice to this assault. It appears that Jane also reported the incident to the Lambeth magistrates, and little to no investigating was done. Although Officer Lee did visit the scene of the crime, it is stated that he said that no place could be better adopted for such an act, as persons could be seen at a considerable distance approaching it on both sides. One of the main reasons why this case was probably not chased up further was probably due to the lack of witnesses and therefore hampering any further probing. As the legend of Spring Hill Jack swept the capital, so too it seems did the imitators and copycat Springers. During the month of March, it was reported in the press that two tall men in black cloaks, with faces smeared with ochre, had terrorised a boy in Westmoreland Mews. Another Jack wannabe for his accomplishments in the Kilburn region clad in a mask with a bearded layer, James Painter, was fined four pounds. It was also reported that on either the 28th of February or the 1st of March, a genteelly dressed man had walked into the White Lion pub, situated in Veer Street. This gentleman approached the bar and with a silken voice told the landlady that he was the mysterious spring-heeled Jack. At that instance, he pulled out his self-protector. The so-called life preserver was a version of the club that a respectable man may carry, but not as frequently as a genuine cane. The mysterious gentleman aimed a vicious blow at the woman's head, which fortunately for her, missed its target. <coughs> In Islington, it is reported that a blacksmith by the name of James Priest was apprehended by the police after assaulting several women, and he was eventually sentenced to three months' hard labour. At roughly the same time, a man draped in a flowing cloak grabbed a woman in Lincoln's Inn Fields and slapped her full on in the face and perhaps more telling of the amount of press coverage that was given to the Jane Allsop case, a young adult by the name of Daniel Glanville was apprehended in Kentish Town, wearing a mask with blue paper adhered at the mouth to simulate the fiery breath of Spring Hill Jack. The boy was discharged with a caution this time. It seems that just as things were beginning to die down, and the daily grind took precedent once again over people's lives. A woman was assaulted at South End, on the clifftops, by what she described as a gentleman who threw her to the ground and ripped violently at her clothes. The fiend also stuffed grass in her mouth. Even if only a cursory glance is given to this account, it is clearly seen that apart from the shredding of the woman's clothes, there is no real substantial evidence to link this case with the aforementioned incidents of Olson and Scales. Despite this, the local newspaper still decided to label the fiend Spring-Heeled Jack. And despite facts pointing out that there was no connection between some of these incidents, they were all bundled together 
for it appeared that there now was a new name for common perpetrators of physical abuse, and that was Springhill Jack. The Peckham Ghost Springhill Jack was first identified as the Peckham Ghost in 1872, when a mysterious figure was reported to have been seen in Peckham, South London. Jack was only linked to the case by metropolitan papers such as the News of the World and the Illustrated Police News, though these were, much like today's papers, only reporting the rumours that were rife at the time. The Peckham Ghost Tale began during the first week of October. There have been several tales of a white-clad person frightening the locals. As an example, consider the following. He appeared on the 14th of October 1872 to Sarah Ann Foster, a girl living opposite the Crystal Palace Tavern and charring at Mr Smith's in Lordship Lane. It appears that she had been to fetch the supper beer, and on her return she was required to go on another errand, when she complained to her mistress that there was a tall man waiting in the road. Mrs Smith remonstrated with her on the folly of being frightened, and Mr. Smith said he would watch her from the window. She started on her errand, but had not left the front garden when a figure in white rose from behind the fence. She screamed loudly and rushed towards the doorway and was clasped in the arms of her master. He, having seen the apparition from the window, and in rushing out caught his foot on something which threw him forward, and instead of catching the ghost, he caught the girl in his arms, who, thinking it was the unearthly spirit that had got hold of her, went into a fit, which she remained for two hours and is now seriously ill. The description given by Mr. Smith and the girl is as follows. About six foot high, dressed in long overcoat, having white lining, which, when thrown open, aided by a white waistcoat and outstretched arms, gave the desired effect a dark felt hat, and a plume of black feathers with which he hides his ignominious features. It appears that apart from the use of white clothing, the tale bears very little to the previous cases of Jack. On the 6th of November, another encounter was to occur. This particular event is one of those few cases that seem to allude to a slightly supernatural explanation of Jack. Until this point, it has always been assumed by the evidence that Jack was definitely a living, breathing man that had a taste for the theatrical, for example, dressing up as a bull, demon, ghost or devil. The following statement was made by G. H. R. Davison, who wrote to the editor of the Camberwell and Peckham Times... While returning from a friend's house in Brixton Hill last evening, via Hernhill, I was accosted by that fellow, the ghost. I had just arrived at the point in Hernhill Road, where the footpath runs from the side of St Paul's into Half Moon Lane, when the figure came forth from beside the stile. I confess I was momentarily frightened, but speedily recovering my presence of mind, was on the point of making an onslaught with my umbrella when the object turned sharp round and cleared the low railings in a bound. 
and made off across the country. Now being over forty, it was useless thinking of pursuit, but I, however, satisfied myself that he is clad in a black suit, which, by some means, he transposes into white when needful. He also has spring-heeled or Indian rubber-soled boots, for no man living could leap so lightly and, I might say, fly across the ground in a manner as he did so last night. Joseph Mundy was arrested on suspicion of being the Peckham Ghost in November. Matilda Ayers, the chief witness against Mundy, said he spread his arms wide to reveal that his black cloak was lined with a white material and made a queer booing with his mouth. Mundy appeared before magistrates at Lambeth Police Court. Mundy's arrest appeared to satisfy local journalists that the ghost of Peckham was locked safely away, but while he was detained and ultimately asked to find assurance that he would do well for six months thereafter, new claims of ghostly apparitions remained for a time. Nonetheless, in the beginning of December 1872, Peckham's ghost fears seemed to have perished. Other Encounters In April and May 1873, it was reported that there were numerous sightings in Sheffield of the Park Ghost, which locals also came to identify as spring Jack. Similar stories were published in the Illustrated Police News. Some of the witnesses went to the press and stated that the ghost was tall, gaunt, and of an unearthly aspect, skimming over the ground with supernatural swiftness. In August 1877, there were further recorded sightings of the mysterious Jack. The report was as follows. A guard on duty at Aldershot Garrison's North Camp looked into the darkness, his attention drawn by a mysterious figure advancing towards him. The soldier issued a challenge, which remained unanswered, and the figure approached him and slapped him across the face many times. The guard shot at him with no visible effects. Some sources claim that he may have fired blanks, others that he missed or that he fired warning shots. The strange figure then disappeared into the surrounding darkness with astonishing bounds. On the 17th of March, 1877, the local military newspaper, Sheldrake's Aldershot and Sandhurst Military Gazette, reported the event. Someone or other appears to have made up his mind to play some rather questionable pranks with some of the sentries at this camp while on night duty. About a week ago, it appears, but we do not vouch for the correctness of this story, a sentry was on duty at the North Camp, and about midnight someone came towards him who refused to answer to the usual challenge of who comes there. And after dodging about the sentry box in a fantastic fashion for some little time, made off with astonishing swiftness, not, however, until the sentry had loaded his rifle and fired, but without any effect. Spring-heeled Jack, as he has been termed in camp, then paid a similar visit to the sentry on duty near the cemetery, who also fired, but alas, without hitting the object at which he aimed. <laughs> 
what or who the individual who is thus amusing himself might be, we do not know. But such little bits of fun might be carried just too far. And enjoyment of this kind had better be discontinued before one of the nocturnal pranks leads to unpleasant results. The Aldershot appearances of Springhill Jack were referred to in Lord Ernest Hamilton's 1922 memoir, Forty Years On. However, although he incorrectly states that the events occurred in the winter of 1879, following his movement to Aldershot by his regiment, 60th Rifles, and that there were similar occurrences when the regiment was barracked in the winter of 1878 in Colchester. Hamilton added that panic became widespread throughout Aldershot, that sentries were issued ammunition and they were ordered to shoot the Night Terror on sight, following which the appearances ceased. Hamilton thought that the appearances were actually pranks, carried out by one of his officers, a Lieutenant Alfrey, but it was either thought that the offences were too minor or simply too trivial, as there is no record of there being a court-martial for Alfrey. Springhill Jack vanished at Aldershot in late April, but he reappeared in late July, according to the police news. He reprised some of his favourite pranks on this second visitation. His method of proceeding seems to be to approach unobserved some post, then climb the sentry box and pass his hand, which is arranged to feel as cold and clammy as that of a corpse over the face of the sentinel. The sentries had lately been ordered to fire on the ghost and were loaded with ball, but this precaution has lately been given up. Jack pursued his old tactics on the 31st of August, 1877. He managed to reach unseen the powder magazine in the North Camp. Here, having nearly frightened the sentry out of his wits by slapping his face with death-like hands, he appeared hopping and bounding into the mist. The police news were particularly surprised by the reappearance of Jack. As to their knowledge, the suspect in the first spate of incidents was no longer at the barracks. Another similar sighting occurred in Lincolnshire. It was said that Jack was seen wearing a sheep's hide near Newport Arch. He was reportedly chased by a furious crowd. He was surrounded and he was shot by residents, but to no effect. As always, he took use of his leaping skills to lose the mob and to hide once again. Sightings of Jack had waned by the end of the 19th century, and the reported sightings were moving towards the northwest of England. In 1904, there were reports of appearances in nearby William Henry Street and Salisbury Street. The events in William Henry Street were reported thusly in 1967 by the Liverpool Daily Post. In September 1904, the Springing Terror made his last appearance, this time in William Henry Street, when hundreds of local folk watched in awe as the pathetic creature leapt up and down the length of the Everton Street. After more than ten minutes of leaps which would embarrass present-day Olympic high jumpers and pole vaulters too, he was seen to jump clean over the terraced houses from Stitt Street to Hague Street, and then hop back across the slate roofs 
to Salisbury Street, after which he was never seen again. It was during this time that Jack seemed to be linked by the locals and press to local poltergeist activities that were happening for no other reason than that he was supposed to be a paranormal entity. Although within a newspaper article, a Mrs. Pierpoint stated that in her opinion, the actual Spring Hill Jack was a local man slightly off balance mentally. He had a form of religious mania and would climb on top of rooftops of houses, crying out, My wife is the devil! They usually fetched police or a fire engine ladder to get him down. As the police closed in on him, he would leap from one house roof to the next. That's what gave rise to the Spring Hill Jack rumours. Jack was one of the period's most popular figures. His claimed exploits had been published in newspapers and many penny dreadful plays at cheap theatres. In certain Punch and Judy plays, as Henry Mayhew has told, the devil was even dubbed spring Jack. spring Jack was described as the very image of the devil himself, with horns and eyes of flame, in a report from Northamptonshire. The legend was linked with the phenomenon of the devil's hoofprints, which appeared in Devon in February 1855, but more about that in a future episode. A Captain Finch was convicted of assault against women, during which he is said to have been disguised in a skin coat which had the appearance of Bullock's hide, skullcap, horns and mask, in Tainmouth, Devon. Many elements of Victorian life, particularly in London, were affected by Jack. His name was associated with the bogeyman in order to scare youngsters into good behaviour by informing them that if they were not good, he would spring up and peek in through their bedroom windows. Three pamphlet publications, ostensibly based on true occurrences, emerged virtually simultaneously in January and February 1838. They were not promoted as fiction, though they were most likely partially such. The only known copies were said to have perished when the British Library was bombed during World War II. During the second part of the 19th century, the figure was written into a variety of penny-dreadful stories, first as a villain and subsequently in more heroic positions. In the early 1900s, he was being portrayed as a costumed selfless avenger of wrongs and protector of the innocent, essentially serving as a forerunner to pulp fiction and later comic book superheroes. Spring-Heeled Jack's narrative has led to a variety of origins and identity interpretations. Some academics look for legitimate reasons for the occurrences, while others examine the more spectacular elements of the narrative to suggest various forms of paranormal conjecture. Jack was not regarded as a supernatural being, but as a macabre sense of humour in one or more people and these occurrences led to imitators who subsequently took the mantle. The tales were rejected as widespread hysteria by sceptical researchers who investigated spring Jack's occurrences. However, other experts believe that some individuals might be behind their origin. It has also been suggested that spring Jack is an alien entity of non-human appearance and superhuman agility, 
deriving from life in a higher gravity world, with his skill in jumping and odd behaviour, and that he was a demon accidentally or purposefully summoned into this world by his own skill and strange behaviour. So what do you think? Was he a gentleman or a group of gentlemen out for a good laugh and took pleasure in terrifying women, or was he perhaps a strange paranormal entity? As ever, it is your choice, as this tale remains as yet unexplained. Links to our Facebook page and email address are in our bio, so feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, and even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Next week we will be looking at strange deaths, and the strange cases of the lead masks and the Jameson family. Thanks for listening. If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings, Time slips, cryptids, cults, and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com or search Occultaria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts. End transmission.